Well, hi, everybody. It is so good to be with you guys in Ottawa. Uh, my name is Joel, if you're new to Grace City Church. I've been part of the, the journey with Grace City from the beginning, um, mostly from a distance uh, here in Brighton in the UK, um, a city that maybe one day you'll get to visit if uh, travel becomes permissible again. Um, and uh, I love visiting <clears throat> you guys in Canada when I get the opportunity, but I do also love to connect with you online. I know that you're going through the creed, the Apostles' Creed at the moment, and you've reached that part of the creed where, where the statement is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. And so we're talking today about being forgiven, what it means to be forgiven. Uh, the freedom that comes with being forgiven. And uh, I, I, I wanted to use a story from the Old Testament that I've been recently teaching through myself here in the UK, uh, very relevant to the subject. And it's the story of what we call the Passover. That extraordinary account of God rescuing his people out of slavery. Uh, the children of Abraham the Israelites had been uh, tangled up in a terrible situation, enslaved by a brutal Egyptian regime, and they cried out to God in their desperation, and God shows up and uh, rescues them. The way he shows up is he, he deals with the whole of Egyptian society. He basically turns it on its head. He deconstructs Egypt. He brings it into meltdown. I suppose we've known something of this in the last few months as COVID has ravaged so much of our global uh, societies. Uh, we've, we've known economic meltdown. We've known social meltdown. We've known all kinds of dysfunctions that come from that. So much that's familiar has been taken from us and we feel as though much will have to be built up from scratch all over again. Now, COVID has done this, but what God does to Egypt is the same thing, but kind of on steroids. He does it times 10. There are 10 plagues. And to us, looking at the story from thousands of years away, uh, the plagues can look arbitrary. They look peculiar. Uh, there's a plague of frogs. Uh, he turns the river to blood. There's a plague of bugs, a plague of locusts. It, it, it just looks very curious. You know, why not a plague of, I don't know, pigs or a plague of, of pie? <laughs> plague of, I don't know, jelly or jello, as you guys call it. I think you do. I don't know what Canada, I don't know what the Canada-US position on jello, jelly is. I don't know. Why does he not, you know, well, it seems random. It isn't random. Uh, there's, there's, there's actually context for the choices. Each of the ten plagues corresponds to some kind of Egyptian deity. God is publicly dealing with the gods of Egypt. He's wiping the floor publicly with the things that the Egyptians have built their whole society on. Every society is built around what it worships. We might think, no, it isn't. We live in secular Western culture. We don't even worship anything. That's not true. We worship all the time. We just pretend not to when, we, when we're secular. 
that we're worshipping. We're building our society around certain treasured priorities, certain values that you can't question. And it's the same, it always has been the same. God deals with each one of the Egyptian gods they've built their society on, one after another. And then comes the tenth plague, which is the most hideous, the most devastating. God takes out the firstborn son of every single family, every household, which to us, uh, from our vantage point, it, it, it seems barbaric, it seems hideous. We need to step back and consider what's going on. And we're going to just look at this story to understand what does this have to do with us and the subject of being forgiven. Let's read from, uh, I'm going to read from a couple of places, Exodus chapter 11 and then Exodus chapter 12. We'll skip a few verses to get the, the story. It's too much otherwise, so we're just going to take some highlights. That's what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbour and every woman of her neighbour for silver and gold jewellery. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I'm going to skip to a place in chapter 12. The story kind of comes to a climax. Verse 21 of chapter 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. When we look at this story as a whole, we see it naturally as God stepping in to rescue the oppressed. The Israelites were slaves and the Egyptians were cruel slavers, especially their king, the Pharaoh. It was, a, it was an oppressive regime and God shows overwhelming mercy, kindness, compassion and power to set things right in favour of the oppressed, the, the marginalised, the brutalised, the put down. God raises them up because he loves them, he favours them and he loves justice and he hates injustice and wickedness. The, everything about that is true. But there's a danger that we only see the story through that lens. If we do, we run the risk of imagining that this world is essentially divided into two parties, the oppressed and the oppressor that some human beings are oppressed and some human beings are oppressors. 
And, and that's, the, that's the only thing that matters. And the, the goodies are the oppressed, you know, the people for whom we should feel uh, compassion, respect, uh, affection. People that, people that are, we're for are the oppressed. People that we're against are the, the others, the, the oppressors. Now, it's fascinating to consider how we've even got to that place as a culture. Why is it that people in Europe and Canada and America tend to think that way? And that, that's a whole other subject, because it wasn't how people thought hundreds of years ago. I think it's a legacy of Christianity, but let's put that to one side. The, the, the key thing for our purposes today is that it's natural for us to therefore see ourselves, especially if we believe in the God of the Bible, and we, we see ourselves as you know, loved and rescued by the God of the Bible, to see ourselves as primarily victims who've been helped out of our victim status. So, you know, we, we, are, we are delivered from things that were too much for us. Now, that is true, but it's not the whole truth. Because what this story also tells me here is that the oppressed were also guilty. The people who God comes in to rescue are also in need of mercy. In fact, they're in need of the very same mercy that the Egyptians would be in need of from the holy living God. The God who comes to rescue them, he wants there to be a very clear sacrifice made in every single home. Every single home will have their eldest son required of them. God insists on it because, because God is wanting to deal with a deep problem for which everybody is complicit. Now, when we get into the Bible, we notice how this is the case because you see the children of Israel for what they really were. Later on, it describes how back in Egypt, when they were slaves, they were also worshippers of the Egyptian gods themselves. They themselves had not been faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, their fathers. They themselves had been lured over to the gods of Egypt. They were just as much enamoured by, in love with, drawn into, deceived by the gods of Egypt. They were just as much idolaters and therefore sinners as their Egyptian oppressors. So the Bible doesn't divide us into category ultimately of oppressed and oppressor. Ultimately, it's into holy and unholy. And these people are not holy. However oppressed they are, they're also unholy. This is definitely a big stumbling block for 21st century Bible readers. We need to get past our assumption, which we make without realising we're making it, that there is some basis on which we deserve to have God look on us with favour. For these people, it would have been easy to think, well, we're Israelites. You know, we're, we're ethnic Israelites. We belong to the right tribe, or the right tribes, perhaps, I should say. We, we're children of Abraham. So, of course, God likes us. And of course, he's going to favour us. And, of course, he's not going to challenge us. And he's definitely not going to afflict us with the plagues. He's definitely not going to take our eldest son but in fact, God insists on it. God puts towards them an incredibly clear message. You will just as much be at risk. You must prepare for the destroyer. The angel of death is coming through the whole nation and that 
makes it an issue. You, you desperately need to apply the blood of a lamb to the doorposts of your house. And you see, as I was reading the story, how this works. The angel of death, as the Bible describes, the destroyer, God's powerful agent of judgment, comes through the whole land, looks at every household overnight. This is a different kind. This is like Christmas Eve in a horror film. You know, this is kind of the opposite of Santa Claus coming around dispatching presents. It's, it's every household in the nation is, is visited with death. Every single one wakes up to a horrible, horrible morning. Except those whose lintels, whose doorposts are stained with the blood of a lamb. And when the angel of death, when this powerful force of judgment sees the blood, there's a sparing, there's mercy. This is huge for us because it shows us why we talk about blood as Christians so much. Some of us, we prefer not to. The subject of blood, especially in the modern age, has become very divisive in, in kind of Christian circles and, and just generally. You know, people despise the idea of blood, 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 just filthy kind of medieval religion. But the Bible insists on blood as a big, big theme. Why? Because sin is so hideously ugly that the solution is also dramatic, ugly, you could say. People get offended by sacrifice. Good. If you find this offensive, if you find the idea of blood and death and judgment offensive, well, maybe that's a good thing because you're just tasting the reality of how offensive sin really is. But I want to talk to you just in the time that remains about what we see of the importance of the blood here. We see the necessity of the blood. We see the authority of the blood. And we see the affirming power of the blood. And all of these are aspects of forgiveness that we need to learn about. The necessity of the blood. Let me put it like this. What we're used to as a society is the, the problem of guilt feelings. Guilt feelings. We, we all understand that concept. When somebody feels guilty. Now we tend to, in our, in our world, see guilt feelings as one of the prime things to avoid. We do not want guilt feelings. Guilt feelings are bad. And so we avoid them like the plague. We do all we can to suppress them. And when somebody says, I feel a bit guilty, I notice you cannot stop someone <laughs> in that group of conversation coming quickly through to say, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty. Someone will always say it. Maybe everyone will say it because our instinct is to quickly dismiss guilt feelings. Oh, no, no, don't feel guilty. If ever we raise a moral, ethical issue, even by accident, we're very quick to say, uh, not that anyone should feel bad about that. Uh, I saw this happen the other day. Not that anyone here should feel bad about that because we don't want to poison the air or uh, one of our, uh, you know, conversation partners with the, the notion of guilt. We don't want anyone to walk away with guilt feelings. Now, that's not necessarily... Uh, completely wrong but I think it betrays a shallow understanding of what guilt feelings might be there for guilt feelings themselves are not the worst thing the way we tend to understand stuff is we think of guilt feelings as something kind of inconvenient on the surface of our lives because deep down underneath everybody 
we want to believe the best of them, sure, but we also, we also want to assume that there's, there's really nothing wrong deep down. Deep down, everybody's a nice person. Deep down, everybody's got a good heart. People will say that about, you know, a serial killer. Yeah, deep down, deep, in the deepest place, in the deepest place. You know, it's what, sometimes somebody, you know, a criminal's parents come out on, 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 the, on the public media and say, you know, oh, he's a lovely boy, you know, he's deep down he's got a good heart. <laughs> you think, oh, he's hidden it very well then. And, and the, 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 the way we do this, the way we, t we have a kind of twitching tendency to go that way is actually the opposite to the way Jesus talked. You might be surprised to hear that. Jesus is such a nice, loving person. Jesus said, no, it's actually from the deep down place that evil comes. He says, it's from the heart of man that comes every evil thought. Anger and pride and lust and all these things that are deep down. He says, yeah, they are deep. Those are what we have deep down. The deepest place of man is where the, where the rot comes from. The deepest part of us is the dangerous part of us. So the guilt feelings that we feel on the surface, they might actually be a kind of sign of something more profound, more serious underneath. And it, it, it goes with what we know, doesn't it? It stands to reason. If you have hunger feelings, you, you, you can, you can uh, repress them. You can say, oh, I'm not going to go with my hunger feelings right now. I know I want a carb up, you know, I want, I want some pasta, I, I want, some, I want some, a, some crust of white bread, but I, I'm... I'm not going to go with that because I'm, I'm going to fight my hunger feelings. Good for you. I, amen. You know, I wish I was better at that myself. Suppressing hunger feelings is, is yeah, fair enough. But there is such a thing as then going too far because you can, well, your hunger feelings can be an outward sign of something more serious underneath called hunger. Genuine hunger, which leads to something called starvation, if you leave it for too long, which leads to something called death. You can, you, the feelings on top are just a sign of something that's objectively serious. Our feelings, yeah, they might, they, they go and they come and we need to be careful how we go with them, but what they point to is the issue. What is, what is the objective reality that the feelings might be pointing to? If somebody is troubled and burdened with guilt feelings, then rather than just saying to them, oh, don't feel bad, surely the better thing is to say, what, what is it pointing to? What do we know? What is there under the surface that might need to be dealt with? Because if we deal with that well, well, actually, the feelings then, <laughs> well, we can start to understand and interpret them differently, even start to hope for better feelings if we can deal with the deeper problem of guilt. And the only way that can happen is through the work of blood. You see, we sometimes imagine that God ought to just forgive guilt because that's what God is like. That's what God does. Isn't God nice? Isn't God just, isn't God just supposed to be that kind of kind person? You know, doesn't your book say that he's loving and kind and he should just forgive us? That's what he does. His job, that's what he does. But when we think like that, it betrays a complete... Failure to grasp the seriousness of the guilt, the seriousness of the sin. There's a Swiss theologian called Karl Barth who, who said, imagine somebody riding their horse at night time and just going across a landscape and only discovering when they get off their horse and look at the map that they've gone across a lake. And he's from Switzerland. He's imagining you know, great, great big fat lakes in, these, in the Swiss Alps. Imagine if they just 
<laughs> just kind of galloping across this whole lake and don't even realise, but it's an icy winter. In Canada, you know all about these, you know, the thick ice over the lake, but they, they had no idea, you know, what they've done it. And they have this terrible sense of awe. What have I done? Oh, the shock, they fall to the ground. How could I have been so foolish? The risk I was taking going across that lake. You know, maybe in Canada, you, the ice is that thick and it doesn't matter, but say it's a little thinner terrifying moment of realization and Karl Barth was saying that's that's the that's the human condition we need to realize how serious we tend not to we tend to have a very shallow grasp of the weightiness of sin and guilt and so we need help with it surely this shouldn't shock us completely because if you ever had to forgive someone I mean really forgive someone you, you know, don't you, that that's not a shallow thing. No one can just forgive. God, God can just forgive us. Why doesn't God just forgive us? No one can just forgive. It's never that simple. You ever tried to forgive someone, really, for something that's really hurt you? You know what it's like, perhaps, to spend days, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, having to train yourself to not speak against them, not undermine them in conversation, not think bitter thoughts, not dwell on their undoing in your mind, not imagine outcomes that would make you feel better, to pray for them, to rejoice when they rejoice, to feel sad when they feel sad. That takes, it takes pain, right? There's a cost, there's a cost in it. So we shouldn't be surprised that for God, the Holy One, to forgive, it involves pain, it involves cost, it involves sacrifice. This is what we see in the way that God has provided for forgiveness. How can the Holy God just forgive? And it points to this ongoing theme in the Bible, the blood of a lamb, a sacrifice, the giving of blood. It keeps going through the Bible. It keeps going. It keeps going. Builds up from this point onwards. Sacrificial system and different sacrifices, different animals given. We know as well, right? That in itself doesn't really work. Perhaps in the heart of God. Why should the blood of an animal make God different, make him feel different? That would be a good question. The answer is because it, it was never meant to in itself. It was a sign. It was a sign of something greater. Because ultimately a lamb would be provided. It wasn't an actual physical lamb. Every year the Israelites would celebrate the Passover with a meal and they would kill a lamb every year to remember this sacrifice that saved them from judgment. And then one day Jesus sat down with his best friends before he went to the cross and a lamb was killed usually, but on this occasion, we don't read of any lamb at the dinner table. Jesus offered them bread and wine. There's no lamb. And I suppose only days, weeks, months, years later, the disciples began to put two and two together and realise he was the lamb. Because it was the next day that Jesus was nailed to a cross. Blood flowed from his hands and feet and from his side. As a spear was plunged in, blood flowed. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
Jesus suffered. Jesus was punished. And because of Jesus, we can receive pardon. So the, the, the Lamb of God is a necessity. The blood of the Lamb is desperately needed in our lives. A pure Lamb, a righteous Lamb, one that's well prepared, one that's holy, that's done nothing wrong. And therefore, the second thing I want to say, I've said the necessity of the Lamb. Let me talk secondly about the, the authority of the Lamb, of the blood. The authority of the blood. You see, if Jesus, the Lamb of God, has died on the cross, and if his blood has made a way for forgiveness of sins for everybody who believes in him, everybody who puts his blood over their lives, everybody who trusts in him, everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John chapter 3, verse 16. If, if that's true, it's true for the Christian every day. It's true whether we feel forgiven or not. It's true whether we've done well or not. It's true whether we're good people or not. See, we, we put our confidence very easily in the wrong thing, don't we? We look at whether we feel forgiven. And I don't see anything here about how forgiven the Israelites felt. God wasn't testing them on whether they felt forgiven. God wasn't testing them even on whether they did well, whether they were good Jews, good, good Israelites. Are you, are you good? Are you good Christians? Let's, let's look through the window of your house to see if you're being kind to your wife and good to your kids and, 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 and using, using your finances well. And, and all, are you doing well? Therefore, the, the angel went past. No, 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 no. For all we know, all kinds of misdemeanors may have been going on behind those doors. The only thing the angel looked at was the blood. The blood. The blood. Do you realise that's how it is for you? If Jesus has died on the cross for you, that is enough for God's wrath, God's judgment to be passed over your life. And it is not necessary, it is not relevant for you to be looking at your life in some overscrupulous way, desperately trying to work out by your feelings whether or not you're really forgiven. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. It's time to decide you might say, well, I, can't, I just can't ignore the feeling of guilt. I just feel unforgiven all the time. I just always feel it. My friend, you're missing the point. <laughs> I feel so guilty. And you might say, I can't, I can't ignore that, can I? I? What am I supposed to do, just ignore that feeling? Well, it's better than ignoring the blood of Jesus, isn't it? Which thing has the final authority? Your feeling of not being forgiven or the blood of Jesus? If you say, Jesus, I just don't feel forgiven. I know you say I am, but I'm sorry, I just don't feel it. You've got to be careful because what you're really saying is, I'm basically ignoring you. What you did for me on the cross doesn't really count. It wasn't really enough. It wasn't really enough. No, that's foolishness. It was more than enough. It was finished at the cross. He said so. The cross did it. You're free. You're free. So stand in it. Train yourself. Teach yourself. Deal with it that way. You sometimes have to be a bit brutal with your own feelings of guilt. You have to say, you tell them where to go sometimes and be, be prepared to do that from time to time and make a decision. Let your feelings catch up. Your feelings are important. Your feelings are important, but you sometimes have to train your feelings and say, look, hold on, hold on. Where is this coming from? 
Is that true that I'm under guilt, that I'm covered in shame? Is that true? No, it's not even true. Jesus has died for me. Jesus has bled for me. People will say, I know that God forgives me, but I, I can't forgive myself. I, I know that he's forgiven, but I can't forgive myself. That sounds quite noble, maybe, but if you stop and think about it, it's pretty awful. What we're saying is God's standards are a bit lower than mine. You know, God forgives because, well, he's not as holy as me. I, I just can't forgive myself. No, be more humble, please, my friend. If God has forgiven you, if this God has found a way to forgive you, who are you to disagree? Learn to be humble. Say, God, I, I line up with what you say. I choose to believe it. Jesus died for me. I am clean. I'm forgiven. Talk to yourself that way if you need to. Third and final thing, very quickly, the affirming power of the blood. The affirming power. I love this thing in this story. In chapter 11, you notice, he said in verse 3, that Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. Favour, affirmation. See, God didn't just set them free from their slavery by saying, OK, run, run, <laughs> run while no one's watching. They all hate you, they all despise you, get out of here quick. No, God actually saw to it that they were honoured as they left. It says, not a dog will bark at you. Did you catch that? <laughs> the whole of Egypt was just standing in wonder, just this awesome sight of these, these people. How can this be? Well, there's a clue, I think, in the fact that Moses was held in high esteem. The people were afraid of Moses because they knew God was with him. They saw it. It was un unmistakable. This guy, ten plagues, terrifying, wonder. And God's people were with Moses. If you're with Moses, we respect you. We affirm you because you're with God's man. It's beautiful. I tell you, if it's true in, in their story, it's even truer in mine and in yours. If you belong to Jesus, all the esteem, all the affirmation, all the honour and respect, all the wonderful glory that goes to him, you share it with him. It's yours to enjoy. Jesus is covered with accolades and praise and the Father's bountiful love in heaven, poured out on his Son, with whom he is well pleased. If you belong to Jesus, then you receive. Just like these, these <laughs> useless Israelites, these selfish... I mean, you know, if you read the rest of Exodus... You read numbers. These are these just like me and you. They're just selfish, grumpy people. No, that's not how God saw them. Ultimately, it's not how heaven saw them. They were esteemed. And it's how you and I, if we belong to Jesus, there's a certain kind of love and esteem. We're not just forgiven in some kind of, well, I'll let, all right, well, 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 we'll not talk about that then. You know, have you ever, someone ever forgiven you like that? Forgiven you like that? You know, okay, thanks for forgiving me, but you're always, you're always feeling like it could be brought up again. You're always feeling like, you know, but they, they don't like me. They don't trust me. And I'm not loved. I'm not, I'm not accepting it. Friends, if you belong to Jesus, you're, you're, he's not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He's not. He, he comes into heaven saying to the Father, behold, I am the children you've given me. You read it in Hebrews chapter 2. 
That's how Jesus talks about it. He's not ashamed. Not ashamed to say, yeah, these guys are with me. You're, you're with him. Say it to yourself. He's, he's chosen. I, he wants me with him. <laughs> First thing he says when he arrives with the father, oh, I, want you, I want you to meet my friend. I want you to meet my brother. Look, I, brought, I brought him. I brought her. I paid for them. Receive the affirmation of forgiveness. Father, thank you so much for the power of forgiveness. Help us to stand in the good of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. So good to talk with you. See you again soon.